When I first started this podcast, the idea was that I was going to focus more or less exclusively on film. However, even after I had gotten a few episodes in the can, I started considering the prospect of handling some television shows. As I mentioned in a previous episode, I'm not a huge TV guy. I think the main difference between film and television, as I implied beforehand, was that uh, the purpose of film is to sort of let you come out of the theater feeling like a 90-minute to 120-minute high, which is what I prefer. The idea behind television is to just make you sit down and gives you enough pleasure to make you sit through to the next episode, which feels to me like a Skinner box. It's not really my type of vibe. That being said, television is an important medium in how Americans function, and I do think that it's definitely worth examining. I'm not sure if I'm the best person to do this, but, you know, it's a podcast. There are a million others like it. I'm not really hurting anybody if I just completely shoot myself in the foot here. So with that in mind, we're going to be talking about a television show. And since it's Rachel's turn to pick the episode, one of her personal favorites is the cult classic one-season wonder clone high, which uh, ran on MTV between 2002 and 2003. We're going to be looking at four different episodes of the show and examining how it impacted the world in its very short reign and surprisingly long afterlife. My name is Ryan, this is Real Deep Dive. And I'm Rachel, back again with the perpetual (laughs) co-host. Once again, this is being recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, and because of social distancing, you're it. Yeah! (laughs) I actually caught a few episodes of Clone High when it officially ran back in the long, long days of the long ago when I was still in high school, and while I liked it, you were like a, I don't know if uh, if I'd call you a super fan, because some of the P- Clone High people I ran into online are, are utterly psychotic about it, but you liked the show uh, during a period where nobody even knew what it was. Yeah, I did not watch it when it originally aired, because I am a not significantly younger than Ryan, but younger enough that we did not watch the same television shows growing up. So I didn't watch it when it originally aired. I just kind of found it and watched it on YouTube one day. And I was like, oh, let's watch a few episodes. I watched the whole thing. I mean, there's only 13 of them and it's like 20 minutes apiece. Yeah, it's not ridiculous, but I, I did, you know, spend the whole afternoon in my room just watching Clone High. We will be uh, getting into how YouTube basically rescued the show from uh, f- from total obscurity later on. Before then, uh, it was created by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who became big names in the years following. And it was produced by Bill Lawrence, who was the only person attached to the show who had serious experience. He had uh, created a network TV sitcom called Spin City, and at the time he was uh, working on Scrubs. We'll also be talking about how this show ran concurrently with Scrubs and how they bled into each other. And yeah, afterwards he'd create Cougar Town, which some people like, but I haven't seen a single episode of. Yeah, me neither. The basic concept of the show is that it takes place in a high school somewhere in the United States, and it is attended exclusively by teenaged clones of various famous historic figures. You know, there's a there's a Genghis Khan, there's a Vincent Van Gogh, uh, the Bronte sisters are milling about. Yeah, there's two Elvises, Fat Elvis and Skinny Elvis. I mean, just just that alone, it's it's a great elevator pitch concept because mm-hmm. you immediately understand that there are a lot of possibilities and directions that this type of thing can oh, go yeah. into. 
And actually, uh, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, they pitched it very loosely. They just had some character designs of, like, Joan of Arc and John F. Kennedy. And when they were asked what the show was about, I was like, I don't know, they date and stuff. But apparently the, the character sketches were so interesting and funny that they were able to talk MTV into giving the show a shot. Yeah, you can easily find the character sketches on uh, Tumblr, which I did. So I was like, all right, I'm kind of curious to see if there's like any sort of fan down left over for this show. And it was sparse, but there was you know, still enough to show that all of the like the sketches that were done are, are pretty much the same as, you know, what you end up in the TV show. So anyways, these clones are attending the high school and uh, the clones were created by a government agency known as the Secret Board of Shadowy Figures. Which are exactly what they sound like. They're looking to harvest the clones at an appropriate age for nefarious world domination purposes. However, the school is overseen by an agent of theirs named Cinnamon J. Scudworth. He's the principal. He's the principal, and he's constantly wearing yellow kitchen gloves for some reason. His idea is that he's going to hijack the clones and use them as theme park attractions. Cloney Island, as he so puts it. And we're going to talk about Mr. Butler Tron, too. <laughs> when we start breaking down the characters, yeah. Butler Tron, he might be one of your favorites. I think he's funny. I mean, they're all my favorites. So. <laughs> yeah, the overall tone of the show, since it was an MTV program, the network pushed them to insert references to things that, you know, a 14 to 22-year-old would readily understand. And at the time, a lot of people in that age demo were watching uh, teen melodramas on the WB, which is, you know, now the CW, uh, most notably Dawson's Creek, which there are several direct references, and uh, also contemporary teen comedies of the time, like American Pie and She's All That or obliquely referenced in the show. Apparently, Lord and Miller were not familiar with any of those programs at all. They, they had to watch them as research for the show. Yeah, but you know what, those, you don't really need to watch, like, teen dramas to get all of the teen drama jokes. I never watched Dawson's Creek, so... I never sat through a single episode either, but just through cultural osmosis, when I saw, like, Gandhi standing in the dinghy in the pool, I understood that it was a Dawson's Creek reference. Oh, really? I thought it was just so that JFK could tell people to get off his dinghy. Well, I mean, the, the show is never too proud for a penis joke, but... Oh my god, no, it's not. It's like, it, it looks like it's a kid's show. Like, the design is, you know, evocative, like, Dexter's Laboratory and all those other, you know, popular kid's shows. But it's not a, a kid's cartoon. <laughs> Another thing that's a very prominent aspect of the show is just riffing on 80s sitcoms, which I'm too young to get, at least firsthand, so I'd imagine a lot of them are very esoteric on your end. Yeah, I watched 60s television as a child. Like, I watched a lot of Star Trek, Gilligan's Island, The Andy Griffith Show. As you mentioned before, Mr. Butlertron, he's a riff on Mr. Belvedere. I know they wanted to call him Mr. Like Belvertron or something, but they were like, nope. Copyright issue. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a little mechanical British butler named Mr. Butler Tron, and he calls everyone Wesley. Wesley. Where are my 
bitches and he's pretending to be a teenager. <laughs> yeah, and he's wearing a Flava Flav clock. Yeah. Because it's not too proud to make that obvious reference either. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, well, the one aspect of 80s sitcoms that keeps coming up again and again is the concept of the very special episode, which I don't think originated in the 80s, but was basically beaten into the ground and calcified into archetype during that decade. It's yeah. a, it was a promotional gimmick wherein a sitcom, in order to draw viewers in, would have what they would call a very special episode about a very serious issue that is hitting hard in the youth of America today. Usually something related to, like, drugs or teen pregnancy or some random episode of Full House will do an episode about anorexia and DJ will conquer it over the course of 22 minutes, which is unintentionally condescending. Yeah. So yeah, there's a there's a narrator at the beginning and end of every episode of Clone High, and he says that every single episode is a very special episode, yeah. <laughs> and the episode topics are about the dangers of ADHD or not getting enough sleep, which I suppose are serious issues, but yeah. are not typically the subject for very special episodes. Yeah. One of the episodes that we rewatched for this was Joan of Arc dressing as a boy so she can play on the basketball team and it's you know kind of a parody of like a you go girl you know storyline and both people of many genders are all like yeah john dark is hot (laughs) also there were 80s and 90s teen sex comedy movies where a woman would dress up uh, as a boy in order to get somewhere and wacky hijinks would ensue oh yeah i mean i loved those books when i was a kid Let's break down the characters one by one. The uh, central protagonist of the show is Abe Lincoln, who's voiced by Will Forte, and he's kind of the anchor of the show. And uh, while the other characters often get a lot more like wackier meat to chew on, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that Forte has is one of the strongest comedic presences on the show. Just just the way he just voices Abe. Oh yeah, he's definitely kind of the straight man, even though he it, he does cause like a lot of problems because. He's kind of oblivious about a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, his clueless obliviousness is the is a running thing throughout the entire show. And most of the conflict of Clone High centers upon a fixation on Cleopatra, who is voiced by Krista Miller. Since this is a Bill Lawrence show, uh, Krista Miller is going to show up because she's his wife. <laughs> Why not? Well, I mean, you know, if you're going to marry somebody in the industry and you actually want to see each other, you're going to have to start working on the same stuff. Yeah. And I think that Abe Lincoln, compared to some of the other clones, I think he's probably the most at peace with his connection to Abe Lincoln than the others. Even though he does kind of struggle with trying to, you know, live up to the original, he does actually try instead of completely rejecting it or having it descend into self-parody, like, JFK. <laughs> yeah, the next main character is uh, Joan of Arc, who's voiced by Nicole Sullivan. Uh, I I really like Nicole Sullivan, even though I was never really a big Mad TV fan. To me, um, she was the voice of Shigo on Kim Possible, whom I loved. So uh, I was like obsessed with, with Shigo as a young preteen. So if I had watched Clone High when it was on, I bet you $20 I would have tried to dress exactly like Joan of Arc. Yeah, Joan of Arc is this moody goth girl. She's got this fuchsia hair, and her main character uh, trait is that she's the ducky of this program. She's infatuated with Abe Lincoln. He only sees her as a friend, and that just breaks her heart, and obviously she's super jealous of and hates Cleopatra. Yeah, 
and Joan of Arc has kind of cracked under the pressure of, you know, trying to live up to, you know, the original Joan of Arc. So she's just very like, ah. she's like, I'll try, but she's not, she doesn't completely reject it because you know, there's one episode where she thinks she starts hearing the voices and she's kind of like, all right, I accept this is happening to me now. Oh my God. <laughs> So the next character, the one who fails the most to live up to his historical oh, predecessor, oh is, is Gandhi, <laughs> voiced by Michael McDonald. And we will be talking about the ripples that Gandhi's characterization caused in India later on. Yeah. Gandhi is just, he's not quite a party monster, but he would really like to be. Yeah, he's just too much of a loser in the school. He's very animated, and he can't sit in one place for very long. The uh, ADD episode is mostly about him. Lord and Miller mentioned that out of all the characters, Gandhi needed like twice as many poses when they were in storyboard mode, just because he's just always snapping back and forth and doing stuff. Oh, yeah. He, he's completely rejected, not only completely rejected, you know, his legacy from the original Gandhi, but... He has very little in common with the original guy. There's one episode where he's like, if it's anything Mahatma Gandhi stands for, it's revenge! One character, which I, I think is the source of a lot of your fondness of the show, being that you're a big old Kennedy nerd, yeah. uh, is, uh, is JFK, who is voiced by Chris Miller, doing the most obnoxious burlesque of a Boston accent I've heard in, well... I, I'm trying to think of a worse one, but no, no, this no, is this no. is nastier than Mayor Quimby. Yeah, I have to be like, this is not, this is, bad. This is Mayor Quimby on steroids. Yeah, and like, I, I was showing Clonai to my friend, and he was like, wait, did you kind of really talk like that? And I'm like, yes, yes, he did. Well, sort of. It's, yeah! <laughs> it's definitely exaggerated. Oh, yes. If you can't tell by the tone of my voice, I am from the metro Boston area. I am not. <laughs> yeah, you New Yorker, you. But, yeah, I've uh, lived everywhere. <laughs> whenever a TV show, especially a cartoon, decides to rip on Boston, whether it's The Simpsons or BoJack Horseman or those several episodes of 30 Rock, I'm never offended. I'm like, oh boy, they're making fun of us. It's very masochistic <laughs> of me. It's like, punish me, BoJack Horseman. Make fun of the stupid way I talk. <laughs> I don't notice my own accent more often than not, unless I'm in another part of the country. Then I'm like, oh, God, I'm Mayor Quimby, surrounded by all these Floridians. Yeah, I mean, as an army brat who lived in the South for a few years, I will still drop y'all into my uh, into my conversations. Yeah. I never notice when I roll my R's. <laughs> I actually can't tell if I just enunciated the letter R in that last sentence. I don't know, I'll have to find out when we listen to the recording. Yeah, yeah no kidding. And, uh, JFK, unlike his counterparts, he's completely embraced the whole, you know, I'm a clone of John F. Kennedy super hard. So he's like, well, he thinks that JFK was a macho womanizing stud who conquered the moon. You didn't say it in the accent. He was a macho womanizing stud who conquered the moon. Conquered the moon. <laughs> yeah. All right, we already touched on Cleopatra, yeah. but yeah, Cleopatra is just like the hottest chick in the school, and oh boy, does she know it. Yeah, and yeah. she's Cleopatra Smith because Cleopatra kind of didn't have a last name. I mean, they could have added some of her other titles, but it's funnier that her name is Cleopatra Smith. They could have, like, called her Cleopatra Septimus. That, that would have been a nice little inside joke for the history nerds. I mean, then the show is packed full of history jokes for the nerds. So many. 
Yeah, the other uh, creator of the show, Phil Lord, voices uh, Dr. Cinnamon J. Scudworth, and he said that uh, Scudworth was one of the most emotionally wrenching performances he's ever had to give. Oh, really? Because Scudworth's just such a drama queen. That's true. Yeah, he he talked about, like, one monologue where Scudworth is freaking out about how he he never remembers to bring, like, his free sandwich punch card whenever he goes out to eat, and he just loses it. And uh, Lord was just like, I've been frustrated by things like that, and and, and it brought it back to me, and I literally cried. Aww. <laughs> As you said, it uh, Miller is Mr. Butlertron, which which we already talked about. Mm-hmm. The minor supporting cast, just about every historical figure who has been dead long enough to not sue them, uh, pops up in this that you could think of. They regretted that they couldn't really get much mileage out of uh, Albert Einstein or Marilyn Monroe because their estates are especially litigious. <laughs> yeah. You see Marilyn Monroe for one like second, and she has one line. And obviously, it's a it's a Kennedy banger yeah. joke. Like I ended up a big you know what I mean? <laughs> There's Marie Curie who <laughs> I love be, Marie be, Curie <laughs> because she died of radiation poisoning. Her her clone is like this a disfigured monster. I know, but she's she's a cute monster. And you know what I like about it is that the fact that she's, like, super deformed, it doesn't bother her. She still, you know, sees herself as worthy of people's affection and friendship. And, you know, she, even though she's on the lower end of the social spectrum at Clone High, she does participate in the dance troupe and seems to be the captain. Yeah, she's perky and that's just infectious. Mm Mm-hmm. Then there's uh, Mr. Sheepman, who is voiced by Andy Dick. Andy Dick also voices Vincent Van Gogh. Oh I love Mr. Sheepman. <laughs> and uh, I should also mention that each of the teen clones have foster parents, most of them who are obnoxious burlesque parodies of stock characters that show up in these sort of things. Except for Toots. Toots is just a riff on the magical Negro stereotype. Yeah, it kind of leans into it really hard. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, he's Joan of Arc's stepdad, and uh, whenever... Step, he's foster grandfather. Yeah, f- a foster grandfather. <laughs> whenever Joan of Arc is feeling down, whenever Abe rejects her, which is every episode, he gives a speech about, now, I may be blind, but even a blind man can see, and then it often segs into a non-sequitur. Mm-hmm. And then he walks into a wall because he's blind. Ha ha, get Yay. it? While the the whole magical Negro stereotype has been ripped to shreds in the years since the show came on, I think this might be one of the earliest examples of somebody just making fun of it and making light of how condescending and problematic it can be in certain contexts. Because, I mean, The Legend of Bagger Vance and The Green Mile and every other show that, that basically brought this to light, you know, Driving Miss Daisy, so on and so forth, those were still going on. That that run was going on. Dave Chappelle and Keen Peel hadn't poisoned the well yet yeah and i mean some of the other foster parents are goofy you know gandhi's foster parents they're jewish and Uh, hmm? jfk's foster parents are both like gay dads and once again they're one of them's like really campy and the other one is not i guess that's the joke he's really butch but he has lipstick because you know it's that kind of show it's 2002 you could get away with that yeah, he's like, you've got to settle down. <laughs> yeah, that one's got a Brooklyn accent. Yeah, he does. and uh, It's a cartoon, and somebody has to have that Bugs Bunny Brooklyn accent. Oh, yeah. And 
Uh, I think the most normal parents are probably Abe Lincolns, which is why they only appear in like two episodes, unlike everybody else's, you know, foster parents who tend to show up in multiple episodes. Speaking of which, we should probably start talking about the episodes. Oh yeah, we picked four to talk about. Well, one's a two-parter, but still four episodes. Yeah. All right, I already talked about the pilot, which is entitled Escape to Beer Mountain, A Rope of Sand. The first episode, if you're trying to, like, introduce Clone High to someone, this, you should just start with the first episode. I mean, there's only 13, but yeah, th- th- this yeah. sets up the show nicely. All the characters mm-hmm. are introduced. Uh, the central conflict is Abe, who is desperate to get invited to JFK's party so he can put the moves on Cleo, promises to bring beer. He has no idea how, so he ends up handing off non-alcoholic beer and assuming that nobody will know the difference, and they don't. They all think that they're getting wasted. Joan, who's trying to get Abe to notice her, sets up a teen crisis hotline in order to impress upon him uh, her desire to improve the community, which is Abe's, like, rationalized throwaway line for why he's interested in Cleo in the first place. Yeah, it's not because she's gorgeous and has big tits. <laughs> Gandhi, he gets roped into uh, Joan's crisis hotline, but he really wants to go to the party, so he just has all of his messages forwarded to his cell phone. It's a flip phone. Yeah, it's a flip phone in case. <laughs> and he does a very poor job, particularly with Vincent Van Gogh, who ends up swearing revenge. Principal Scudworth, in order to appease the board of shadowy figures, decides to infiltrate the party so he can write an essay about how much he understands the teens. And this doesn't work out because neither of them are particularly convincing teenagers. He's like, it's me, a cloney student. <laughs> Hello, fellow kids. Yeah, and that's when Mr. Bellatron says, where are my bitches? <laughs> I don't know what's worse, your Boston accent or your robot voice. Well, it's funny. People will laugh when they listen to the podcast. Well, here's hoping. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in particular you wish to highlight in this particular episode before we move on to the next one? I guess it's kind of much to bring up this now is that this show, it is serialized. It's like there is a storyline, you know, certain things that have hap- that happened in, you know, previous episodes are referenced later. So this was kind of like an earlier example of, you know, serialized cartoon storytelling, which is probably why it's so easy to marathon this. But I bet when it was airing, it was a little bit difficult. Not that the continuity is heavy in this show, but, you know, you probably should watch it in order to get the most out of it. The next one we want to talk about is a little later on in the season. It's on the second half. Rachel has this in physical media. This is how much she likes it. She ordered a discontinued DVD online. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I asked for it for Christmas for my parents. Shout Factory put out a DVD of Clone High because that is where canceled shows go to uh, extend their half-lives. Yeah, and it is discontinued. I don't know how my dad found it, but... He did. It was on. Yeah, last time I looked at it on eBay, it was like 15 bucks. You can find it without too much trouble, but mm-hmm. we'll, we'll be getting back to that. Anyways, the next one we're talking about is Homecoming, A Shot in Dark. Uh, this one centers on the Clone High basketball team. Now, they have suffered a long string of defeats against the uh, genetically modified Super Soldier High School. That That is their rival school. Yeah, known as Gesh. And they look kind of like Nazis. The Gesh logo is stylized G that sort of looks like a swastika that's, you know, in a white emblem on a red flag. And all of the genetically modified Ubermensch super soldiers march in lockstep. It's, it's not subtle at all. Although the, uh, the, the principal is like a stereotype of like a southern plantation colonel. 
Yeah, he reminds me of, uh, what's his name? Dale Dimidome of the Dimsdale Dimidome from Fairly Odd Parents. Sorry, I just wanted to say that on the podcast because it's a tongue twister. <laughs> Uh, Colonel Sanders looking guy. Not quite a Nazi Colonel Sanders makes a sporting wager with Scudworth over whether or not the clone high kids will be able to score a single point. The first bet, uh, Scudworth had to give him his firstborn. This one, they've upped the ante. Uh, The loser has to do the winner's laundry for a week. Yeah. And it has one of the many celebrity cameos. Chris Berman, formerly of, you know... Football Night in America voices himself. He does lay a blight by play commentary during the basketball game. But the central conceit of the episode is that Joan, looking to prove a point about how the basketball team doesn't allow women or animals to play, (laughs) disguises herself as a man named John Dark. She literally just puts on a backwards baseball cap and a big mustache. And the mustache moves whenever she talks, which lends itself to the comedy, at least to me. Oh, yeah. And it's just funny that, like, you, the audience, you're not supposed to realize that it's her. Ooh, and all the characters are completely into this John Dark character. She suckers them right away. Uh, Since she's the best player on the team, Cleopatra is instantly attracted to her. JFK looks badass and starts suspecting that he might have underlying uh, homosexual tendencies, which <laughs> which creates a great deal of in, inner turmoil within him. Mm-hmm. Now, Gandhi wants to uh, contribute to the, the team as well, and in a fit of school spirit, decides to kidnap the Nazi school's mascot so he can <laughs> poop in the suit. But he's horrified to discover that, that the goofy cartoon monster mascot is an actually genetically modified creature. Like, it, it, it has a zipper that lets its organs out. That's when he figures it out. Yeah, he has like a little trumpet mouth. And he, he says, candy, about everything. Except he doesn't just want to eat candy. He wants to eat flesh. <laughs> yeah, Gandhi and the and the mascot, you know, they become friends. There's like a hanging out montage where they're romping through the park together. Yeah, like, yes, she loves uh, yeah, eventually the squeaky cartoon thing after Gandhi lets it go just goes to the forest and just starts tearing animals apart. He eats a deer in half and kills a bear. Yeah, he rips the bear's face off so you see its muscle. It's it, it, it's, yeah, it's grisly. Yeah, it is. Even through the limited animation, it's oh, nasty. Oh, Geshi, no. <laughs> rampage ends up cycling back to the game itself. This B-plot is actually connected pretty well to the A-plot, and the, the rampage allows two free throws from the clone students, and Joan of Arc dramatically reveals herself, but gets to take the free throws anyways after Abe gives an inspiring speech. She sinks one of them, therefore Scudworth wins the bet, even though the clones lost 400 to 1. Yeah, and now the, you know, Colonel Sanders principal has to wash the underwear that he's worn for seven years straight at Burning Man, as he says. (laughs) Now, Joan thinks that uh, everyone will embrace her uh, breaking through the glass ceiling and all that, but most people just credit Abe for the victory scare quotes because of his rousing speech. And Cleo immediately evinces uh, interest in him, much to Joan's uh, chagrin. Yeah, even though when she found out that uh, Cleopatra, when she found out that John Dark was actually Joan, she was like, yeah, I'm kind of into this. And of course, JFK is relieved that he is still, in fact, heterosexual. <laughs> Gay panic humor, everybody. Uh, yeah. 
Well, I mean, at least this one conceded the humor is that JFK probably shouldn't be feeling so insecure about it. Although, yeah. the, the gag where he tries to watch Will and Grace with his gay parents is not aged especially well. Alright, the next one we're talking about is uh, the two-parter. Makeover, 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 the makeover episode. Yes, it is called Makeover, 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 the makeover episode. Yeah, you're going to be singing that stupid makeover catchy tune for the rest of your life now. Congratulations. There's one thing that you will retain from Clone High. It is the makeover montage music, which is used as a very effective running gag throughout this episode. At this point, Abe and Cleo have been dating for a while, and Abe needs to come up with a suitably ostentatious method of asking Cleo to prom. Her ego depends upon this. She's the most beautiful woman in history, according to her. Uh, however, Abe can't stop thinking about Joan's dateless situation. Meanwhile, Gandhi, who is desperate for a date, is ignoring uh, Marie Curie's interest in him. And because JFK had an argument with himself in the mirror, <laughs> it makes des- sense in context. <laughs> decides that he's going to remold Gandhi in his own image, which sets up one of your favorite sequences in this show, <laughs> where JFK has to teach Gandhi how to um, ask for a potty plata in his Boston accent. Yeah, and he's like, I want a a potty platter for supper. (laughs) Gandhi eventually figures it out, but, you know, JFK is like, watch your hurry. Add some more eggs and eyes in there. Need more eyes. No, it's pretty funny. I think my favorite little sight gag in that whole transformation is that Gandhi obviously stuffs some socks down the front of his pants to give himself, you know, a much more noticeable bulge, except it's not just one sock, it's like five socks. He just keeps pulling socks out of his pants after he realizes that JFK was just using him to bolster his own ego, and apparently Gandhi has dignity now. Yeah, and he's like, I don't want to be JFK anymore. <laughs> what I found is interesting is that the phrase that JFK made Gandhi recite uh, over and over again wasn't about pocking the con Hobbit Yod. Well, that, that's a stereotype. Then I get something funnier. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, they touched about everything else. I mean, JFK is obsessed with his chowder. Yeah, he, he makes references to that in the next episode that we talk about. <laughs> Well, anyways, the that's the B plot. The, the main plot is that Joan keeps getting subjected to a series of ever more ridiculous makeovers. First by Abraham Lincoln, who turns her into sort of like a cyborg nurse. Yeah. And then Toots just so, sort of like wraps her in like radial tires. Yeah, I know. Poor Toots. And eventually Cleopatra takes pity on her and just turns her into this. A vapid slut, as everyone keeps saying in the episode. As she's revealed, it's a riff on that slow motion makeover girl walks down the staircase that's in a whole bunch of teen comedy movies yeah, from this period like if you want to do one to me you would just suddenly take off my glasses and i'm oh, so much more beautiful <laughs> i just cut my hair so i can't do the sexy hair toss yeah we're just gonna have to rely on your sexy hair toss which was quite sexy <laughs> a plus sexy yeah yeah, but... Uh, oh, there's a C-plot in this, because have you been wondering what Scudworth is up to? Oh, yeah, he's also getting a makeover from Mr. Butler Tron. You see, Scudworth went to high school with John Stamos. Stamos! And, and Stamos was the prom king, and he calls up Scudworth every prom season to rub it in his face. So Scudworth decides that he is going to rig the prom at Clone High, so he becomes prom king. I didn't know who was my prom king. I don't remember either. I, I do remember that my date was on the prom court. 
That's meaningful. So wait, she just left, she, I'm assuming she, she just left you there? <laughs> well, I mean, for a little ceremony thing, because, you know, I, I wasn't on the prom court. I, I don't think she got a title. She wasn't like the prom baroness or anything. I mean, I have my prom dress in the closet. My mom made it, and it, it doesn't fit me anymore. <laughs> Anyways, the, the the cliffhanger for this episode is that the secret board of shadowy figures has... Would this technically be the D-plot now? Yeah. Yeah, it is the D-plot. Yeah, they figured out that Scudworth is trying to hijack the clones in order to start a theme park, so... Coney Island. They're going to break into the prom, steal all the clones, and kill Scudworth. Uh, that's the to-be-continued on Makeover, Makeover, Makeover. That leads us to the, unfortunately, the what is probably going to be the last ever episode of Clone it is called Changes, colon, the big prom, colon, the sex romp, colon, the season finale. You say their prom location was better than mine. Mine was in a, a train station that was very, very loud because of the echo. Abe is wavering on his feelings for Cleopatra, who is planning to have sex with him on prom night, which he is not sure he's ready for or not, which sets up a lecture from his dad about abstinence-only education, which, since this happened during the Bush administration, was not the horrible punchline it is today. I managed to get semi-comprehensive sex ed in, in elementary school. Only just told us not to have sex, and a cartoon dog taught us about AIDS. Really? Because, I mean, I, I got the full carpet rollout, uh, uh, health teacher was just yeah i mean if you if you want to do abstinence that's great but statistically speaking most of you ain't so here's how to put a condom on oh yeah they, they couldn't show us that anyway back to the sex romp episode <laughs> his, yeah. his dad Abe Lincoln's dad tells him basically to, to get it because cleopatra cleopatra's a real piece of ass so his dad just starts using euphemisms ending with yeah you gotta verb that noun adjectively <laughs> yeah his dad's like the standard, you know, 50s pipe smoking dad stereotype, so it's funnier coming at it coming from him. Shattered that Abe is going to give up his virginity to Cleopatra, Joan of Arc has agreed to go to, with JFK to prom, who is won over by her, you know, vapid slut makeover. Mm -hmm. And she starts acting like one. Uh, most of her dialogue for this episode is tee hee hee, JFK, <laughs> you're so funny. You're so funny! <laughs> yeah, and JFK has other dates. Catherine the Great and the, all three of the Bronte sisters, which I think leads to one of the, the uh, the most unappreciated jokes in the episode where he says that he just gave them to the three stooges. Well, I mean, one of my favorite gags is the uh, in another episode, he's like, hey, I'm trying to nail Catherine the Great here. Or Catherine the So-So. <laughs> yeah. And then Gandhi tells Catherine the Great to get off her high horse, which, uh... yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know what, I respect Catherine the Great for being horny all the time. Not on the horse, though. <laughs> In all likelihood, she didn't die by having sex with a horse that was likely spread by her political enemies after the fact in order to discredit her. Yeah, because she was a woman. Gandhi, who has been shot down by uh, Marie Curie, who realized what a jerk he was, uh, she has decided to go to prom with Rock Hudson. Ha ha ha. <laughs> yeah, he, he concocts a scheme to get himself and all the other losers dates at the prom. They're, they're just going to show up with, like, white suits and tennis shoes and just give everyone some attitude, and that works about as well as you'd expect. Yeah, and the losers include um, Moses, Nostradamus, Buddha, uh, Edison. And uh, Genghis Khan. Don't forget Genghis Khan. Oh, yeah, Khan. I can't forget Genghis Khan and Napoleon. 
Genghis Khan isn't known for fucking. Yeah, I mean, this version of Genghis Khan is dumber than two bags of bricks. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, the prom is being held in a meat locker because the gymnasium has been scuffed too much. There's a lot of hanging meat jokes. Yeah, just, just everywhere and all of, like little private rooms, just meat closets. Abe Lincoln and Cleopatra start to, you know, get to a private room where they take their clothes off and start rolling about, but Abe sees Joan of Arc's head conveniently over uh, Cleo's nipples and vaginal area, which, and then Cleo realizes that Abe has feelings for her and is deeply hurt. Yeah, and Abe Lincoln realizes that he has feelings for Joan at last. <laughs> he approaches Gandhi and asks if Joan might reciprocate, and then, you know, we get a montage of every scene of Joan awkwardly and obviously hitting on the oblivious Gabe, punctuated by Gandhi just slapping Lincoln in his stupid face. Yeah. However, at this point, JFK had uh, revealed to Joan that he actually likes her better the way she is. And since she is still distraught over Lincoln having sex with Cleo, ends up banging JFK. In the meat locker. In the meat locker. Yeah. I mean, honestly, though, I don't think I realized that it is kind of a circular joke. Because in the first episode, he asks if she's had enough alcohol to have sex with him. And he's like, answer the question. And the answer is it doesn't take any alcohol for her to have sex with him. It just takes low self-esteem. Yeah. Godworth is about to finalize his prom king ambitions, which, I mean, I, I laughed a couple of times, but I do think this is a waste of Scudworth. Yeah, he can do a lot better. John Stamos comes in, and by virtue of being John Stamos, is instantly crowned prom king, which drives Scudworth nuts, and he ends up stabbing him in the eye. Yeah, that part is pal- I mean, there are a couple, you know, really gruesome moments in Clone Eye, but that one always gets me, because it's like right in freaking eye. And John Stamos just walking around with a missing eye for the rest of the episode. Yeah, and just blood everywhere, and Scudworth, like, everyone in the prom freaks out, and Scudworth puts on the crown, and it's covered in and it's at this moment, the very instant that Abe is about to confess his feelings to Joan and finds her in bed with JFK, the uh, secret board of shadowy figures breaks in to make their move. However, since Scudworth's the prom king, he gets the last request of leading the conga line, of which he does into a cryogenic freezing chamber, which just happens to be in the meat locker. Where... All of the teens have gathered. He gathers all the teens in there along with the government spooks. John Stamos flips a switch because he's just a swell fella. Yeah. And uh, everyone's frozen. And that is where the series ends. Yeah, and there's a little joke in there that I think is funny, is that when Abe first busts in and finds Joan in bed with JFK, her, like, bed sheet is down low, and on her nipples it says, nice try. <laughs> they still have that L-shaped blanket you know, that you see in all network sitcoms, yeah. which, which covers the woman's breasts, but not the man's chest. Yeah, we, we, can't, we can't look at the nipples. Okay, and uh, that those are the episodes that we wanted to cover yeah. in detail, but, you know, the other ones are definitely worth watching. As Rachel said, you should watch them in order, and they all have that sort of tone to them. So many, you know, pop culture and historical references, like there's one scene where Abe is trying to stop Cleo from getting on a plane, and he runs into Buddy Holly, and he, a clone of Buddy Holly, and asks him, is there a plane available? And he's like, yeah, sure. And he's like, there's one me, you know, Richie Valen's a big boss. 
Whopper, a half a lot of Skinner, Jim Croce, and like all the other musicians who've died in plane crashes are all going to go on. I mean, they're clones, at least. Well, was John Denver in the lineup? I, I don't remember that one. Probably not Randy Rhodes either. Mm, I think it's longer, but those are the ones that I remembered off the top of my head. Because of the show's budget, I think they only had like $750,000 an episode to do, which is pretty shoestring by the standards of animation during that period. They adopted the limited animation techniques that were pioneered by Chuck Jones in the uh, Dover Boys short, but were popularized by uh, UPA Studios, who put out a number of popular shorts like Gerald McBoing Boing and Mr. Magoo. As Rachel mentioned earlier, while uh, that technique was used as a cost-cutting measure, especially by Hanna-Barbera throughout the 60s and 70s, it had gotten uh, something of a, a revival in the late 90s, early 2000s by programs like Dexter's Laboratory, uh, Powerpuff Girls, and Samurai Jack, who not only cut the budget down with it, but used that sort of snappy uh, animate on threes and sometimes fours just to have artistic, stylistic uh, reasons behind it. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't look lacking in any way, even if you know it is limited. Definitely used to support the gags, which are very snappy, very rapid fire. Oh. Just yeah. uh, coming at you a, a lot, and it's very dialogue driven. It's a lot of reaction shots. There's slightly more fluidity whenever they get to uh, something that's approaching uh, a heartfelt moment, but even then, I think they're like animating on twos at the very most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the character designs were done by Carrie Yost, who had worked on just about all the shows I already mentioned, but uh, also the uh, Timon and Pumbaa program for the Disney oh Afternoon. <laughs> and he also worked on uh, Ren and Stimpy after John Chris Falusi left because of his dispute with a network and, you know, not because he was a pedophile. Yeah, fuck that guy. In addition to its snappy, conversation-driven gags and lots of historical references and over-the-top cartoon violence, one of the reasons that people grip the show so much is because of its large number of hidden gags. Uh, one of the most obvious is that they will find some excuse to shoehorn a dolphin into every episode. <laughs> yeah. At the very least, dolphin noises, which I, I guess Lord and Miller consider to be inherently funny. Yeah, I mean, there's a dolphin playing on the basketball team. There's a dolphin in the band that plays at prom. They also have lots of subliminal messages, not only in background gags, but it, it was a running gag in an episode, uh, Raising the Stake, which was uh, about the nefarious effects that heavy metal can have on you. And if you're familiar with the history of heavy metal, you do know that throughout the 80s, a number of evangelical Christian groups believed in backmasking the idea that Judas Priest and Ozzy Osbourne would, would had backwards recorded messages telling teenagers to, like, do the dope and kill themselves. I'm glad I was born in the 90s. <laughs> I mean... All right, we should probably talk about the music. I try to touch upon the music in all these episodes. I think another reason that people remember this show is just the banger of an opening theme song. Oh, yeah. Everyone knows, everyone can sing, like, the first few lines. It's an expository, so it gives you the background. Yeah, way, way, way back in the 1980s, secret government employees dug up famous guys and ladies. using genetic coffee. Now the clones are sexy teens now. Yeah. They're going to make it if they try. Yeah. This just makes me think, you know... Back in the day, where somebody from the 1980s would be a teenager now. Yeah, you feel old, right? <laughs> I don't feel nearly as old as when I watch old Simpsons episodes with you, and you're like, <laughs> "Why are they talking about how one's from East Germany and one's from West Germany? Did the was the Berlin yeah, Wall I, a I, recent thing then?" Oh uh, yeah, I, I, I know. I mean, the first world event that I remember is the death of Princess Diana when I was four, so that should tell you how old I am. <laughs> Mine was the Berlin Wall coming down. I was four. 
Anyways, the, the theme song is done by Tommy Walter and his group uh, Abandoned Pools. You might know him as the founding bass player for the Eels. You don't know who the Eels are, do you? Okay, well, during the post-Nirvana era, there was this period where, like, any weirdo left of the dial college rock group got signed to a major label and had a shot at getting at least a couple of hits on, like, MTV and FM radio. And the Eels were one of them. They were kind of like a, a, a bit of a precursor to, to, to emo. There's kind of a singer-songwriter thing. The one consistent member was Mark Oliver Everett, who performed under the name of E. They had one hit that you sometimes still hear on college stations called Novocaine for the Soul. You might recognize it if you hear it. But yeah, it's kind of that poppy, sprightly, uh, earwormy type of thing. The Abandoned Pools theme song to Clone High is very much within that idiom. I wasn't shocked at all when I realized that they were a splinter group from the Eels. Yeah, and they kind of have a cameo as the prom band, too. In addition to the theme song, Walter wrote most of the incidental music. That being said, like Daria and a couple of other MTV shows from the, from roughly the same period, they would work in music where various bands of the day would play in the background. I looked at the list and it was a whole lot of emo and screamo and Midwest power pop and punk pop groups, which I was never particularly a huge fan of, even when they were in their heyday. I recognized the Alkaline Frio and Dashboard Confessional. For like a hot minute, Dashboard Confessional were going to be like the next big thing and it never quite happened. Yeah, kind of remember that. I remember that he wrote like really weepy, melodramatic, anthemic songs that people in my high school class were really into, but not me. And he had tattoo sleeves. <laughs> Th that was a big deal in 2002, I guess. Yeah, I mean, well, in the early 2000s, I was just playing my friends for the CDs over and over and over again on the bus ride to school. <laughs> I'm dancing around this long enough. Let's talk about the Gandhi controversy. Yeah. It's like, I think that people are right to be upset with, you know, the interpretation of a very, very famous icon leader of, you know, Indian and also Pakistan and Bangladeshi history. And he's voiced by a white guy, I assume. Uh, I'm not sure. I didn't actually look that up. But yeah, uh, a Maxim article uh, about the show sparked an outrage in India over uh, the depiction of Gandhi. Uh, the show never aired there, but they got enough of the gist to um, get really pissed about it because, you know, in India, Gandhi's a big deal. He's, he's basically the founding father of their modern government, and uh, he's a very important spiritual leader, even if you only know, you know, cursory basic information about uh, Mahatma Gandhi, you know, you, you understand that he's a very meaningful person. And he is definitely one of those historical figures where the more you learn about him and the more human he becomes, the more his shortcomings come to the, uh, come to the forefront. But, you know, that being said, I do think it's inarguable that he caused more good in the world than harm. And even as an ugly American, I can understand why he's he's been lifted onto such a pedestal as he has. Why people would be upset with this interpretation because Clone High Gandhi is not he is not taken very seriously. I think that as a character, he only has some depth and some heart to him, but. As a caricature of Gandhi, uh, I, I, I don't I don't blame some people for having issues with it. Yeah. But event, uh, yeah, the controversy resulted in a uh, hunger strike involving 150 uh, individuals, including members of India's parliament. 
they started fasting uh, in the hopes that, that, that the Indian government would revoke MTV's license or they would cancel the show. Lord and Miller were apparently asked to pitch a second season without Gandhi. They had two ideas, one of which was that they would just do the second season with Gandhi gone and then they just wouldn't comment on it at all one way or the other and have that be a running gag. I feel like that would that would have been the weaker choice, honestly, because Gandhi as a character is, you know, relatively important. Yeah, uh, the other one was that they would reveal that he wasn't actually a clone of Gandhi, that he was a clone of Gary Coleman, and then they would just continue the show other uh, as, as they were beforehand. I don't know if that would have worked better or, or what. So I, yeah. I guess it's kind of a tough spot. I mean, and in all fairness. All of the characters in Clone High, you know, even the incidental ones, they're jacked up to the stereotypes of everything. And I think the joke in there that I think is maybe the most offensive is the one where they make a joke about Ice being Karen Carpenter thin and, you know, how she died of anorexia complications. You know, the cafe they all hang out at is literally called the Grassy Knoll and the real JFK is just hanging out of the seat dead. Yeah, there is that part. But, um, you know, unlike uh, Abraham Lincoln and Joan of Arc, I mean, not like JFK, but like those two, uh, Gandhi exists in living memory. In this day and age, there are people who remember him when he was alive. They're very old, but they still do. And, you know, 20 years ago, there were even more of them. Yeah, and someone else pointed out online that of the main five characters, all of them died horribly. Well, the clone parents of them. I mean, let's see, three assassinations, one suicide, and burning at the stake. Well, the circumstances of Cleopatra's death have been muddled by centuries of, uh, of history. She, in all likelihood, did not kill herself by self-inflicted snake bite because the Romans considered dying by a venomous snake bite to be a sign that you were cursed by the gods, so that was likely a propaganda thing. Hmm, yeah. Makes sense. Because while the Romans kept very detailed historical records, and a lot of them have survived to the present day, they were not the least bit shy about lying about their political enemies in order to make themselves look cooler. <laughs> that happens today. <laughs> yeah, but the Romans were, like, more flagrant about it, even by the most revisionist, Stalinist version of that. We're getting off topic. Okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I read a uh, retrospective on Clone High that was uh, published 2017, and Lord and Miller did comment that one of the aspects of the show that they regret the most was their decision to go with Gandhi in that particular way. It is a good idea to have like a nerdy party monster. That, that That's a very common character trope in uh, these types of shows. But if they had to do a second pass, they might have rethought Gandhi. They, they feel they kind of put their foots in their mouths. They were young, dumb comedy writers. They didn't think it through. Yeah, you know, that's to say that everything that you like has some sort of problematic or eh element to it. I'm going to use eh instead of problematic. Yeah, pernicious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, you know, problematic has been hijacked by reactionaries who uh, want to paint people who raise concerns like this as fun police ruining crybaby losers who don't talk about things that are really important. Yeah. I mean, I understand and um, why people would be upset about Gandhi. And I, I agree with it to, you know, a certain extent because of how important he is. And like you said, he is within living memory. I'm just I'm trying to think of a, another historical figure who does not appear in the show that they could have used instead. 
the Gandhi controversy um, didn't help matters, but Clone High got pretty low ratings throughout and pretty mediocre reviews, and yeah, it was cancelled pretty quickly. After the show was cancelled, while Lord and Miller considered it a waste of two years of their lives initially, you know, Aww, they, they do realize in retrospect that a lot of uh, fundamentals of filmmaking came to them. It was kind of a crash course for them. They didn't know anything about how to put a show or a film together. Yeah, it taught them a lot of things. And their profile has been raised considerably since the show ended. I think at least early on, they kind of built a reputation for taking something that didn't seem like a good idea on paper and actually turning it into something. Because, uh, I mean, the first major project uh, that I uh, saw them in was the uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs film. I know, it's such a sweet little movie, and it's based on this little wisp of a nothing of a children's book that you'd think would be impossible to turn into a coherent 90-minute film. It really doesn't have a plot. Yeah, it doesn't. And, uh, yeah, they, they actually turned it into something. And, yeah, if I hear that, you know, in the mid-2000s they're going to put out a, a reboot of 21 Jump Street, uh, I I thought that was just going to be terrible. But then all my friends told me that it was hilarious. Oh, my God, it's so funny. Yeah. Some very dumb <laughs> yeah, I saw it. I really liked it. And uh, they also directed the Lego movie, which I thought it was going to be a, a very grass, nakedly avaristic uh, toy commercial. And it's definitely... And it's definitely that, but they actually told a pretty funny, relatable story while that's going on. Yeah, Batman is amazing in that. I mean, not all of their projects worked out. They were working on that Han Solo movie until they came at odds with Disney and got, you know, pulled off and uh, Ron Howard was set in to replace them. And, yeah, I, I don't know what they did and what Howard did, and Solo was okay. Yeah, apparently they were letting the actors improvise, and apparently the guy who played Han Solo was afraid he was going to come across as Ace Ventura. I, I didn't know that, that part. Yeah, I mean, Solo was just eh. Donald Glover was an amazing Lando Calrissian and L3, fantastic rebel robot lady, but other than that, it's just kind of... Yeah, uh, the the most recent project was Into the Spider-Verse, which I did on a previous episode with my nephew Toby, and that film is delightful. Oh I love God, it. Oh my so good. Briefly, in Gwen Stacy's universe, you see a poster for uh, Clone College. Initially, uh, the very first pitch, uh, Clone High was supposed to take place in a university, but they changed it to a high school uh, as they were developing it. Yeah, so they still have a soft spot for the show, and the show did eventually grow a, a not insignificant cult audience online. Uh, about a year or so or two after Clone High was canceled, YouTube blew up, and YouTube is just a haven for like forgotten weirdo projects like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it, to this day, if you go on YouTube, you can watch the entirety of Clone High. I, I, as I said before, I saw a couple of episodes while it was still you know airing on MTV, but I ended up watching the show entirely because I stumbled across it while I was on a YouTube rabbit hole one day. I was like, oh, I remember that show. It's actually really good. Yeah, I, um, recently the scene where Gandhi's like, say what? That became like an internet meme and went around for a bit. And I think that also led people to watching, you know, Clone High. And I, I've shown it, you know, to a couple of my friends since I you know, bought the DVD because 
I was afraid of it not staying on YouTube. So I was like, I need the physical media. <laughs> yeah, Lord and Miller, uh, in a patting themselves on the back moment, claimed that Clone High was kind of a precursor to like Bojack Horseman and Rick and Morty. Just like these weirdo little niche shows that have built up passionate audiences and have these little moments that are easy to turn into memes. Which, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, Clone High is the precursor to that, but it's it definitely a little ahead of its time. Yeah, I definitely agree that it's ahead of its time. The serialized nature, the kind of, like, you know, absurd plot line that it has. The fact that it's, you could have in, like, you know, another universe have turned Clone High into a, you know, edutainment show where different clones of historical figures show up and they teach you about history. Instead, they're all a bunch of goofy teenage sex maniacs. As the theme th song mentions, our, our angst is entertaining. <laughs> yeah. As recently as 2014, Lord and Miller have talked about, yeah, we would totally, you know, reboot the show or do a movie or something. However, you know, Bill Lawrence is uh, working for some other company, and Lord and Miller, I think they're contracted with Warner Brothers, and Clone High is the intellectual property of Viacom, so that's not viable unless the show, you know, picks up a huge impossible to ignore millions of people uh, fan movement, which I don't think it's going to get any bigger than the, you know, several yeah. thousand people who are really into it right now. Yeah, and like I said, I encourage everyone to check it out, especially if you like history or, you know, adult cartoons. And I just want to talk a little bit about, I'm, I'm at peace with the idea that there's a cliffhanger to this and that we won't ever get any sort of resolution because sometimes the resolution to like a long-standing cliffhanger isn't always the best. Like, for example, uh, Twin Peaks, also um, cult show, short abbreviated narrative ends with a very famous an infamous cliffhanger and then you do get an answer like 25 years later in the reboot series and everything that i have heard about it makes me go you know what just not knowing is sometimes better most of my friends kind of like the twin peaks reboot but i haven't seen a single episode of that show so i, I can't speak for myself you know they're probably all still frozen in that meat locker somewhere I consider it unlikely that the show will ever come back, although Lord and Miller have joked about how their entire career post-Clone High has just been an effort to get Clone High back on the air. That being said, I, I think their track record is pretty good. If it actually does happen to come back and, you know, crazier shit has happened, I, I think it would probably be all right. Here's a question for you. Would you rather have them do a reboot or a clarity, you know, continuation. I mean, I'd rather have them pick up where they left off. I, I think it'd be interesting to, like, thaw the kids out in the 2020s and comment on the sort of things that have changed in society in the 20 years since they were frozen. I'm actually gonna say I would be more interested in seeing them do a reboot of sorts, because then it would solve the Gandhi problem. Yeah, I suppose. That touched upon most of the things that were in my notes. Is there anything that you would like to add? Mm, let's see. Oh, did we mention that Will Forte voices Abraham Lincoln Lego movie? Oh, yeah. For, yeah, Forte um, actually has shown up in a lot of Lord and Miller uh, productions, but yeah, in the Lego movies, there's an Abe Lincoln, and he's voiced by Forte. Yeah! He's just like, a house divided I guess my question to you is, I mean, the, this show is one of your personal favorites. You, you sprung to get physical media. What is it about the show that appeals to you uh, primarily? Is it, is it the little history nerd references? Is it the team comedy burlesque aspects? Is it just a mixture? 
I, I like it because of the history jokes and it makes me laugh. And, you know, I like Joan, Joan of Arc. She's definitely the kind of character that I would have really, you know, liked as a preteen girl. I like history jokes. It's funny. It has a hilarious parody of my favorite president, sort of. So... <laughs> I, yeah, if you're looking for an animated goth waifu, uh, you, you had a richness of options throughout the 2000s. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not like, it, it's not like oh, my waifu or anything. I think, like, a lot of, uh, you know, by girls, you have characters that you have crushes on, and there's the ones that you want to be like. I wanted to be Shigo from, from Kim Possible, and I would have wanted to be Joan of Arc. I mean, I had boots and cargo pants and I would have tried to wear a crop top and my mom would have been like no what are you doing <laughs> my fellow bi girls are gonna have to comment on who were the girls you liked and the girls you wanted to be <laughs> I guess the show's appeal to me I mean I think this podcast intimates that I'm something of an amateur history nerd so that was my initial attraction to it but it's it's mixture of its manic pace and in slapstick humor coupled with the dryness and the self-awareness of the dialogue I, I I'm a sucker for that stuff so mm-hmm. yeah despite my inability to finish a TV show to completion even one season I have managed to watch this show through several times and I I, I get a little something more out of it every time yeah and I realized we haven't said one of the most infamous lines from the show it's like did you see the pool they flipped the bitch <laughs> it's like <laughs> Scudworth says after the pool has a riot and he's like they're rioting at a collegiate level <laughs> see it's just like the you know jokes like that <laughs> yeah the, the memeable bits yeah it's always the memeable bits they you know, flip the bits but you know what, one thing that I will say with Clone High is that sometimes with certain shows I can give examples of people really want you can tell when they're like we're writing to make this line a meme and i feel like clone high just has them it's very incidental memes weren't even a thing social media was still about 15 years away (laughs) (laughs) okay on that note i think we can wish you good evening good episode everybody yeah good night watch clone high